Just before the naval battle of Trafalgar in 1805, the British Admiral Lord Nelson had a signal sent from his ship to the rest of the fleet under his command, and the signal conveyed this message. England expects that every man will do his duty. He had the sense that this was an important battle that was about to begin, and he wanted every man in the fleet to do his part in the struggle, to faithfully do his duty. And it is the same in the church of God. We, in this world, are the church militant in the midst of a great struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the church needs every man and woman to do their duty, their duty as it is defined in the word of God. And we find what some of those duties are this morning in our text in Titus chapter 2. Now this morning we're going to be looking specifically at Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'll, I'll go ahead and read down through verse 10. Uh, now, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday we'll be considering the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it'll be, uh, Lord willing, two weeks from today when we come back to the second half of this section, verses 6 through 10. Uh, but we'll go ahead and read the, the entire section to see these duties that are given to Christian people. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And so this morning we begin looking to these directives that are given to various demographics within the church. And the, the context, of course, is chapter 2 begins where chapter 1 left off. And chapter 1, Paul had just warned Titus about these false teachers who must be rebuked. And Paul now moves to tell Titus positively what he ought to teach. Paul contrasts Titus with the defiled and unbelieving of whom he had just written by saying, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Those who are impure and defiled, Paul had said, were detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good work. There's nothing good that was going to come from them. Titus, on the other hand, is to speak the things that were fitting for sound doctrine. The things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Or as the ESV translated it, the things which are in accord with sound doctrine. What might those things be? The specific things that Paul has in mind are the practical instructions which follow from uh, beginning in verse 2 down through verse 10. These things are fitting for sound doctrine. In other words, these instructions are appropriate for those who profess faith in the gospel of Christ. 
Now, the gospel, of course, is the announcement of good news, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world to become a man and to live and to die and rise again so that sinners might be reconciled to God through faith. We are then called by the gospel to turn from our sins and believe in Christ. That's ultimately what sound doctrine is. It is the gospel. And Titus is now instructed to speak things which are fitting or which are in accord with this sound doctrine. And in short, in what we see in this passage, we see that Christian doctrine and the life of the Christian go hand in hand together. What one believes as a Christian and the way in which one lives must not be separated. This is because the doctrine that we believe as Christians has implications for our lives, and those implications are very practical. Let me just give a couple of examples. Do we believe that there is an almighty God who created heaven and earth and rules his creation with a sovereign hand? If so, then even a split second's worth of due reflection will lead us to several true and wholesome conclusions. Number one, we're not God. We're not almighty, nor have we created anything out of nothing. We do not rule the created order with a sovereign hand. And if we're not God, and in fact, if we do exist, then this means that we are creatures of God, made by him and therefore subject to him. He made the world to operate in a certain way. He has laid down certain obligations upon his creatures. And the sooner we learn what those obligations are and live accordingly, the better it will go with us. Second example, do we believe that mankind fell from original righteousness in Adam and that God in his grace sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the second Adam, to offer himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sins, to become the second head of humanity, so that as in Adam all die, so also all those in Christ will be made alive and will live forevermore, forgiven of their sins and completely reconciled to God? If we believe that, then it follows that if we believe in Christ for salvation, we are the words of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we're not our own, but we were bought with a price. And that being the case, we must glorify God with our bodies. We have to use our bodies in a way that is in accordance with what God tells us. You see the point. Sound doctrine has implications. Certain things, certain instructions are fitting and are in accord with sound doctrine. And Titus is supposed to speak those things, those things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And by implication, therefore, whatever is contrary to these instructions uh, is actually contrary to sound doctrine. Anything contrary to what is given here below is out of step with sound doctrine and therefore unacceptable for those who profess to be in Christ. Life and doctrine stand together or fall together. And Paul had just spoken at the end of chapter 1 about those who profess to know God but deny him by their deeds. That means that their profession of faith is worthless. It was proven false because of their habitual and continual wickedness. And now he tells Titus to speak these things which are in accord or fitting for sound doctrine. And that is what follows here. Similarly, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 and 10, Paul had said that women must adorn themselves with good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. There are certain things that are in accord and proper for those who profess godliness. And similarly, what we find here are fitting and necessary attributes for those who profess sound doctrine. And so in the text that we'll be considering 
today and, Lord willing, two weeks from today, we have these different demographics. We have the older men, verse 2, the older women, verse 3, younger women, verses 4 and 5, the younger men with Titus in particular as an example to them in verses 6 through 8, and then verses 9 and 10, instructions are given to slave. Each group is addressed in regard to particular patterns of conduct that is, would be relevant to them. Chrysostom in the ancient church observed that there are some failings which age has, which youth does not. And we might flip that around and say that there are some failings which youth has, toward which age is less inclined. And Paul hones in on specific issues in regard to which these respective groups should be instructed. So first he says that the older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Now let's hash those out a little bit. The first is that older men are to be temperate or to be sober-minded, as the ESV translated it. And the idea seems to be that of clear-headedness. This means that an older man must not have his head clouded, either by alcohol or even by fuzzy thinking in general. The church needs older men to have their heads screwed on right. This will be of invaluable benefit both to them and to the rest of the body of Christ. Likewise, older men are to be dignified, which has this idea of being worthy of respect or honorable, characterized by a certain seriousness. Now, certainly this dignified demeanor doesn't doesn't rule out joy. All believers are commanded to be joyful always, to rejoice in the Lord. We find in Proverbs 17.22 that a joyful heart does good like a medicine. And so this call to be, be serious and dignified is not a call to be grumpy, nor does it rule out joy, but rather must incorporate joy into it. The point is is that there's to be an element of gravity and seriousness that characterizes older Christian men. Or to put it negatively, they must not be characterized by lightness and frivolity and, and flippancy. They must be serious and incorporate joyfulness into that seriousness because the two are not opposed to one another. Similarly, older men are to be sensible. That is to say, they they need to be self-controlled in a prudent and thoughtful kind of way. In wisdom, they're to master themselves and seek to lead a godly life. And then Paul says that they are to be sound in faith, and by extension, sound in love, sound in perseverance. To be sound in all of these three categories. And so their faith in God must be whole and complete, unwavering, unshaken by the winds of false doctrine, unshaken by the insults of the world or the ungodliness of the culture. They keep trusting in God, keep walking by faith and not by sight. Likewise, their love toward God and their love toward their neighbor must be whole and complete. Their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ must not be a mere matter of saying that they love them, but the soundness of their love is to be seen in self-sacrificial acts of service. They are to love not only with word, but also in deed and in truth. And instead of wavering and inconstancy, older men are to be models of patient steadfastness. These are the older men who just keep on going, patiently doing the next right thing, even when it hurts, even when it's not glamorous, even when nobody is watching. Now, I once heard a story about a farmer that lived several miles from where I grew up, and the story was, it was told as true, and the story was that this, this farmer was, was so sick one day that he couldn't even walk to the barn to feed his livestock. And so he crawled to the barn to feed his livestock. He 
knew what needed to be done, and he did it. A man like that is not trying to please the crowd. He's simply concerned with doing what needs to be done and doing so with a tenacity that seems hard to come by these days. This is the kind of soundness in perseverance which must characterize the older men of the church. And so let me just ask the question, older men, does this describe you? I won't attempt precisely to say where the line is between older men and younger men, but suffice it to say, all Christian men must needs fit into at least one of those categories, just as all Christian women must at least fit into one of those categories, younger women or older women. It was said in ancient times that one could still be considered young up to the age of 40. So depending on where you're at, that might be encouraging. It was uh, said by one ancient Roman author that the soldiers were reckoned as juniors up to the age of 46. So maybe that's, maybe that's encouraging, maybe not. But for whatever you want to make of it and however you want to slice it, there is such a thing as old age. And if we live long enough, we will have to own it for ourselves. And so, older men, are you living in the way that is described here? Are your lives characterized by this clear-headed, honorable, prudently wise behavior? Are you characterized by this robust and healthy trust in God, a healthy love for your neighbors, and a consistent, stick-to-it kind of endurance and perseverance in the faith? This is the kind of life to which you are called. This is the kind of life which, for you, is fitting for sound doctrine. This is what it looks like for you to do your duty. This is what the Lord requires of you, and this is the kind of example which the church needs to see you setting for the rest of us. Now, the rest of us don't get off the hook in regard to these characteristics, but you need to be leading the way in these things by your example to us. So, older men, we need you. We need your example. We need your courage. We need your patience, your faithfulness, faithfulness in the big things and in the small things. And if this seems overwhelming or if it seems beyond your ability, let me just say you are right. It is beyond your ability. You're not able to do this on your own. You need the gracious aid of the Holy Spirit in all of these things. And therefore, you must own your weakness and your own inability and your own strength to do these things. And in that weakness, receive the Lord's gracious strengthening. For it is he who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He gives you the will to serve him, gives you the desire to serve him, and he gives you the ability to do so. So seek his grace, for he is more than abundantly kind in his dealings with all of those who call on him in truth. Now moving forward in the text, we see Paul's instructions for older women in verse 3. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, and they are to be teaching what is good. And so first they're to be reverent, which is to say they must live a holy life that is befitting for a holy person. This means that they live a life that's characterized by the fact that they are set apart for the Lord. Jerome and the ancient church explained this to mean that their very walk and motion, their countenance, speech, silence, may present a certain dignity of holy propriety. That's the idea here, a holy propriety in all of life. Everything about them is supposed to breathe out holiness, the fact that they are set apart for the Lord. Also, it is fitting for sound doctrine that women are to be taught not to be malicious gossips or not slanderers, as the ESV translated it. 
Older women are not to be making false accusations and spreading bad stories about others. We're not allowed to defame or to vilify others as Christians. This should not be happening. And so then how do we know the difference between what counts as gossip and slander and what does not? That's a good question. Martin Luther once observed that it is the common vice of human nature that everyone would rather hear evil than good about his neighbor. Evil though we are, we cannot tolerate having evil spoken of us. We want the golden compliments of the whole world, yet we cannot bear to hear the best spoken of others. I may see and hear that my neighbor sins, but to make him the talk of the town is not my business. Or, as another writer expressed it, he who imputes some evil to his neighbor, even if it is true, but if he does it, not, uh, but if he does not make the accusation by reason of his office or out of a desire to see the person amend his ways or that there might be some consultation with others but acts either out of ambition or vanity or some other evil intention of his mind, he is sinning. So we're not allowed to bear false witness about our neighbors. We're not allowed to defame and tarnish the reputation of others. But rather, we must do what we can to preserve the good reputation of others. Now, let's be honest. We live in a world that is very much committed to the opposite of this. We live in a world and culture that is very much bent on the defamation of other people. How much of politics, how much of the news is devoted to this very thing? How much of social media is devoted to this very thing? Defaming and vilifying others, spreading evil reports about others, whether those reports be true or false. Now, to be sure, there is a time and a place to report wickedness, but such a report needs to be made to the proper authorities in the hopes of reclaiming the person from their error, or if there is a danger that is reasonably present, a warning should be given to protect the well-being of the innocent. But none of these should be undertaken in a spirit of self-righteousness or of moral superiority or for the purpose of simply dragging someone through the mud. To quote Luther again, he said, God forbids you to speak evil about another even though to your certain knowledge he is guilty. All the more urgent is the prohibition if you are not sure but have it only from hearsay. But you say, why shouldn't I speak it if it is the truth? I reply, why don't you bring it before the regular judge? You say, oh, I cannot prove it publicly. I might be called a liar and sent away in disgrace. Ah, now do you smell the roast? If you do not trust yourself to make charges before the proper authorities, then hold your tongue. Keep your knowledge to yourself and do not give it out to others. For when you repeat a story that you cannot prove, even if it is true, you appear as a liar. Besides, you act like a knave, for no man should be deprived of his honor and good name unless these have been first taken away from him publicly. Now, in saying that, let me make the necessary caveat, and allow me to clarify. And the caveat is this. Much that is evil and wicked often takes place in secret when there are only two people present, no other witnesses. Such things might be hard to prove, but if someone has been sinned against under such circumstances, they need to report it to the proper authorities. Depending on the circumstances, it could be parents, it could be a pastor, it could be an employer, school administrator, the police, or some combination of these authorities. There's a big difference, though, between reporting properly a crime or something inappropriate that has happened to the proper authorities who have a responsibility to do something about it. There's a big difference between that 
and simply starting a rumor mill about someone just because they happened to say or do something that you didn't like, especially if they did it at a distance. There's a big difference between reporting a crime or something wicked that has been perpetrated against you versus ruining someone's reputation just for kicks. The first is acceptable. By all means, report crimes and inappropriate things. But we can't just be ruining people's reputations just for fun. Older women here are warned against the sin of malicious gossip and slander because Paul sees them as particularly susceptible to this sin. But older women are by no means the only ones who can fall into this sin. And we would all do well to be on our guard against it, especially as this sin is very much a culturally acceptable sin. But it is a sin that stirs up fights and often brings out the worst in people, including those who do the slandering, those who listen to it, and those who are slandered. And back in my teen years, when I would work for my father doing landscaping, I had the opportunity to work with a couple of men who were brothers-in-law, Sam and Jeff. And I had known Sam and Jeff since I had been quite young, as they had worked with my dad over the years. And uh, as, I, as I grew up and began to, to work with them, it was lots of fun. We had some good banter and stuff. And I can remember Jeff one time saying to me something like, Neil, I'm not trying to start nothing, but Sam's been talking dirty about you all day long. And then after saying something like that, he would say, I don't know why everybody calls me an instigator, right? And so obviously this is, this is just, just good-natured banter. But you, you see the point. You can't just throw out a bomb out there and say, what? How's everybody calling me an instigator? Why is everybody calling me a slanderer or a malicious gossip? You can see how this kind of thing gets started. Trouble gets started when people slander. Trouble is instigated. And to our shame, this is even a sin that's sometimes prominent even among believers. Slander is deadly in the life of the church, both the local church and the church universal. And we ought to be putting it to death by the gracious aid of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, Paul says that women are not to be enslaved to too much wine. Now, to us, this might seem to go without saying, but the very fact that Paul mentions it here may point to this having been a great problem among the women of Crete. And if drunkenness was a widespread problem among the women of Crete, then freedom from this evil would have been a great testimony to the power of Christ at work by the Spirit in the hearts of God's people. And so we're told that these women are to be reverent in their behavior, they're to be holy, they're not to be malicious gossips nor enslaved too much wine. And positively, we're told that these women are to be teaching what is good. Older women are supposed to be teachers. Obviously, this does not mean publicly teaching in the assembly of the church. That's forbidden, 1 Timothy 2.12. But rather, the kind of teaching that Paul requires of older women is that they be employed in teaching either privately, woman to woman, or perhaps uh, by one woman teaching a group of women. The kind of teaching that Paul has in mind here is spelled out in what follows. He says they're to be teaching what is good so that they may encourage or urge the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. How's that for a politically correct message to send to younger women today? Well, whether fashionable or not, whether the teaching is derided as a vestige of a primitive patriarchal past or whatever the case may be, this is the word of God that we're dealing with here, and we will believe it and obey it as such. 
Older women within the church are to teach what is good. What is it that they are to teach? Well, specifically, Paul listed out seven virtues that older women are to teach the younger women. Four of those virtues relate to the sphere of the home and the family, and three of the virtues are more broad. And so let's start by considering those three which are more broad. Younger women are to be sensible, pure, and kind. Just like the older men were to be sensible, so also the younger women are to be taught to be sensible. Again, this is to say that they must be self-controlled in a prudent and thoughtful kind of way. They need to be able to look into their current situation in the world, look at the circumstances in which God has placed them, and then act in a way that is wise according to the word of God. They must be taught to be pure. And this applies not only to sexual purity, but to also all of life. All of life is to be lived in a purity of devotion to the Lord, kept by his grace from the defilements of the world in their various forms. And then the third of these broad instructions is that these younger women are to be taught to be kind or to be good. These younger women are to be kind to others, kind to their family, kind to other believers in the church, kind to the people of the world, be they prosperous or poor. So those are the broad characteristics. Now, what of those characteristics that are more domestically oriented? Younger women were to be instructed to love their husbands. Now, husbands are commanded to love their wives. In Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And here, wives are commanded to love their husbands. Now, what could be better? Husbands loving wives, wives loving husbands. The Jewish teacher Ben Sirach said, I take pleasure in three things, and they are beautiful in the sight of God and of mortals. Agreement among brothers and sisters, friendship among neighbors, and a wife and a husband who live in harmony. Chrysostom said that where love is, no discord will find admittance. Other advantages will spring up instead. Connected with that, young women must be taught also to love their children. Certainly seems natural for women to love their children, but they need to be taught how to do this. Affection is natural, but how should that natural affection be worked out in the life of a mother as she relates to her children? Older women should be teaching younger women how this is to be done practically speaking. And this makes perfect sense if we reflect on it. We all need to be taught in our Christian lives. We all need to be taught how to love others as prescribed in the word of God. And older women, at least, will have likely had experience in raising their own children. And from that experience, they may have wisdom and practical suggestions to offer to younger women as to specifically how they can love and nourish their children. The older women should also be teaching the younger women to be workers at home. Now, what does that mean? When we first hear the statement, our first thought might be to ask whether this statement has any bearing on whether a younger woman can work outside the home. Now, that's a fair question, I think. But I also think that there is a good chance that the question we're asking there is probably not the issue that Paul was actually addressing when he wrote these words to Titus. One of Paul's concerns for younger women, as he spelled it out in 1 Timothy 5, 13, and 14, was that younger women not be idle. Idleness went hand in hand with going about from house to house, not staying at home and being idle. Instead, what they're doing is running around from house to house, gossiping, and in that, stirring up trouble, giving occasion to ungodliness. And so instead of that, Paul wants women, these young women, to be busy, to be occupied with productive work, and the natural sphere of that work was and still is in the home. 
But our question still remains. May a Christian woman work outside of the home? And that is an important question. And so what does the text say? What do the scriptures as a whole say? Well, as it stands, there is no direct prohibition in this text that would uh, prohibit a woman from working outside the home. The, The command that younger women be workers at home is not given in the style and form of Paul's prohibition of women from teaching. Paul says about women teaching, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. He doesn't say here, I do not permit a woman to work outside of the home. That's not what is stated here. And the command here is that they be workers at home, not necessarily that they abstain from work that is outside of their home. And if we look more broadly to the scripture as a whole, for instance, the wife of noble character of Proverbs 31 was involved in things outside of her home as well as things that were inside of her house. She is said to have considered a field and bought it. From her earnings, she planted a vineyard. She is described in Proverbs 31, 24 as making linen garments and selling uh, belts to the tradesmen. Her work was not, strictly speaking, confined within the the four walls of her home. But nevertheless, we can't say that the home was her focus. The woman described in Proverbs 31 was concerned with her home and with the people who lived there. She was concerned with keeping the household running like a well-oiled machine. Though her work may have sometimes involved these outside ventures, those outside ventures were not pursued at the expense of her household. Rather, those outside ventures were pursued for the good of her household. So the household is her domain under the authority of her husband, and she has the responsibility to nourish it and to care for it. And I think that we can apply that Proverbs 31 principle to Titus 2 as well. Younger women are to be workers at home in the sense that the home is their special domain and their special region for caring. In our context, I think that the question of whether a woman should work outside of the home is a question which requires great wisdom for a married couple to think through and work through. I think it is acceptable for women under the authority of their husbands to work outside of the home. My wife does. But if they do, they need to take special care that their job or career does not become their main priority. Their main priority in terms of the work that they do should be taking care of their home and their family. It doesn't mean that they necessarily have to be the one who is with the children 24-7 and that they have to be the one who are cooking all of the meals. But it does mean that married women, especially married women with children, should probably think about their jobs and their careers with some different nuances and priorities than would characterize the thinking of a man in this regard. If a woman's work outside of the home is helpful to the family, then that's one thing. But if a woman's work outside of the home is actually harming the family because children are not being cared for properly or because the domestic machinery of meals and laundry and all the other things that need to get done at home are not working out very well and are ripping the family apart, then it's probably time to stop and reevaluate things. Every family's situation will be a little bit different given the skills and the different needs and so on. But suffice it to say from this text that younger women need to be busy at home in the sense that Under their husbands, the home is their responsibility. The home is important and must not be neglected. Whether they work elsewhere or not, they must be workers at home. And we must note here, as I hinted earlier, the emphasis on on working, being diligent, and taking care of things. In other words, not being idle. 
Calvin noted that this does not mean that women are excused from serving their neighbors. And if anyone who needs their help, a woman says, Oh, I have plenty to do at home and can't be bothered with other people's problems. What then becomes of the love which we should have for our neighbor? Therefore, Paul, when he urges women to be busy about the house, it is only to contain them, as it were, so that they were not always running off to hear the latest news, to gad about and stir up trouble and disputes. And so the point is, women need to be busy, not giving themselves to idleness. And their main focus, whether they work outside of the home or not, the main focus needs to be taking care of the household. The older women are to teach younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, and in whatever else they do, to be workers at home. And he says specifically that they are to be taught to be subject to their own husbands. Now, Paul is very specific in the way that he states this. He doesn't state that every woman is to be subject to every man, but that wives are to be subject to their own husbands, that is, her particular husband. This is the, the uniform teaching of the New Testament. We read it earlier from Colossians chapter 3. Paul treats it at greater length in Ephesians 5, and helpfully there in Ephesians 5 is the reason for which wives must submit to their husbands. And the reason given is that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And we learn from this that that marriage is not simply an institution, that we are at liberty to make it to be anything we want it to be. Marriage, rather, is something particular. It has its origins not in man and not from mankind. It is a divine institution given to us by God. And that being the case, if we would be wise, we ought to care what marriage is and to care how, for how marriage is supposed to work. Human marriage is to be a type or a symbol that points to something else. And that something else is the relationship of God with his people. And the Old Testament is full of of the imagery that compares the relationship of the Lord to his people in terms of marriage. You see this as early as Exodus chapter 34, where the Lord uses the language of harlotry to describe the worship of false gods. Because God is in a covenant relationship with his people, then this means that the unfaithfulness that is displayed by them when they go after false gods is referred to harlotry, that is, spiritual adultery. You see this in the prophets, Hosea being probably the most prominent example. Also, the language of Psalm 45 describes a royal wedding. And the New Testament tells us explicitly in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 that the language used about the groom is talking about Jesus. And so it should be no surprise at all, then, when we get to Ephesians 5, that we find this extended comparison made between the Christ-church relationship and the husband-wife relationship. And because human marriage is given by God, that means that God gets to define what marriage is and to define the relationships within it. And this means that if we want our marriages to be healthy, we need to pattern them after the Lord's design. This means husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, laying down their lives for their wives, not being embittered against them, as we find in Colossians 3, or as we find in 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, showing her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And on the wife's side, it means that she must love her husband, as we saw earlier in this passage, and that she must be subject to her own husband. When everyone does their part and obeys what the word of God requires of them, things go well. Chrysostom says, she who despises her husband neglects also her house. 
But from love springs great soberness, and all contention is done away with. If he be a Christian, he will be a better man. Seest thou the condescension of Paul, he who in everything would withdraw us from worldly concerns, here bestows his consideration upon domestic affairs. For when these are well conducted, there will be room for spiritual things. But otherwise, they too will be marred. In other words, if we're able to focus on these earthly things in a way that is fitting with what the Lord has taught us, there will be time and energy for focusing on the spiritual things, the things of the Lord. But if our own households are a mess, even our spiritual endeavors are going to be marred as well. And you remember, even though these are the duties of younger women, these are the things that older women are to be teaching the younger ones. It's not just my job as a pastor. It's not just the job of the elders in the church to teach these things. If you're an older woman, and again, I'll not attempt to define precisely where that line is, but if you are an older woman, this is your responsibility. Sometimes this can be done in a more formal setting, like a ladies' Bible study. Sometimes this can be done in an intentional mentoring relationship. Sometimes it can happen in kind of a more ad hoc situations as friendships develop and counsel and instruction can be given. Go for a walk with somebody and talk with them. Younger women, seek out an older woman to, to, for, for her to take you under her wing and to share wisdom and godly insight with you. There's no one set pattern as to how this should be done, but one way or the other, it must be done. So older women, if we're to function properly as a church, we need your help. The younger women need your help. Please teach them the way of the Lord in these manners. And this also means that if you're a younger woman here, you need to be humble enough to listen and to learn. Don't be too proud to listen from godly women with experience. Now, we've seen in all five of these verses, or at least verses two through five, the instructions, we've seen tall orders for people in different demographics, for older men, for older women, and younger women. We'll get, to the, we'll get to the younger men and so on later on. But we've seen some tall orders here. Who is sufficient for these things? We're fallen, and we're sinful, and in ourselves we cannot hope to accomplish what is required of us. But through faith in Christ, we're not only reconciled to God and forgiven of our sins and justified, but we are raised from our deadness in sin to walk in newness of life. God the Father equips his people with every good thing through Jesus Christ to do that which is pleasing in his sight, as we find near the end of Hebrews chapter 13. And so may it be, then, that we, as the children of God, as those who have been brought from death to life, may walk more and more in these ways, which are in accord with sound doctrine, these ways which are in accord with the good news that we profess as our only hope. And so may God help us in these things. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, that we would faithfully embody these things that you have commanded us, that we would obey you with sincerity, and Lord, that we would not rely on the efforts of our flesh, but rather that we would rely upon your grace and your kindness, the work of your Holy Spirit, where we know that we are weak and that you are mighty. So we ask, Lord, for your mercies to be upon us. Please work in us to will and to do that which you've commanded us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.